0: Bruce exclusive welcome back on this Friday episode of the Bruce exclusive we've got some things to talk about we have the normal things to talk about the almighty takes of which I have more than a few the crumbling their cookies segment but we also have a newsy item and this is the last time I'm going to talk to you all before trade deadline So we have four distinct things to talk about. I apologize in advance for the potential length of this pod. I have estimated how long it's going to be, but let's be honest, it's just an estimate. It's like when you get an estimate on your yard work. It really is just an estimate. So without further ado, let's dive right into things. Newsy item. According to reports, the Buffalo Bills are signing former Jets and Chiefs linebacker Darren Lee, former first-round pick out of the Ohio State University. I say that, of course, because I am an Ohio State fan. So, I actually am familiar with Darren Lee quite a bit. There's a reason Darren Lee hasn't been successful in the NFL. And it's actually kind of interesting when you compare it to a linebacker that we previously had on this roster. And that's Voshan Joseph. I mentioned when Voshan Joseph was drafted that I was a fan of him because I felt that he was a good run-and-chase linebacker. Now, his instincts needed some help, but in a pursuit-style role from the weak side, I thought he could be successful. The Bills drafted Tremaine Edmonds. Even though... I didn't think the instincts were all that good on tape because he was a freak athlete at the linebacker position. Darren Lee was a freak athlete at the linebacker position. He ran a 4-4-7. Now, in addition to running a 4-4-7, you have to understand that he was 235 pounds at the time of the combine, but that was not his playing weight. The estimates were he played around 218 pounds in college. And as such, he had to put on some weight to hold up to linebacker duties in the NFL. I am not in favor of people putting on weight to hold up in the NFL as a general rule. I never have been. It's the same reason why I'm not really a weight cutting guy when it comes to MMA. Fred Warner, one of the best linebackers in the NFL, plays in the 220s. Quan Alexander plays in the 220s. Matt Milano plays in the 220s. You can have really good linebackers, and you don't have to have them be 240 pounds. It's not necessary in today's NFL for you to be that big. People naturally assume that if you're bigger, you're going to play the run better, and that's not true. Instincts, aggressiveness, ability to shed blocks, all of these things matter a lot more when playing the run than size. And Darren Lee is someone who played in the high two-teens, low 220s in college, bulked up, actually didn't play badly his third year, his first and second years weren't great, got shifted off the Chiefs, had some issues where he got suspended for a couple games, and now here he is. It's a perfectly reasonable flyer, but I wouldn't be expecting something dramatic. Even in college, Darren Lee's ability to overrun plays and be over-aggressive and really lack some of those instinctual linebacker plays that you'd like to see kind of reminded me of Voshan Joseph. Now, he's a markedly better athlete. Remember, Voshan Joseph was recovering from an injury in the lead-up to the draft and didn't get a chance to test. Well... And because he didn't get a chance to test well, he's coming off an injury, fell fifth round, and I was in favor. I said, let's give it a shot. This is the same way I feel about Darren Lee. Sure, let's give it a shot. Maybe in the right system, in the right linebacker position, with the right responsibilities, you can take advantage of the athleticism. And that really is the trend when it comes to this Bills team. They either draft really good athletes Or really bad athletes. It's the Goldilocks situation of athleticism. Think about it. Josh Allen. Tremaine Edmonds. Zay Jones. Ed Oliver. Justin Zimmer even. Freaks of the freaks. Like the freakiest of the freaks when it comes to athleticism. Those RAS scores are off the chart. And then you have people like Josh Norman. Dane Jackson, AJ Klein, not so much when it comes to high levels of athleticism. Can I just get a nice happy medium? Just a nice happy medium, but no, 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 no. We're going freaks and geeks. So that is a trend and a funny trend. I have no idea if Darren Lee will stick on this team. I have no idea if he'll make any sort of impact whatsoever. But you know what? Worth a shot. Give it a shot. See how it goes. So the trade deadline is coming up. And with the trade deadline coming up, you get the annual consternation that comes along with being a fan at the trade deadline. And one of the things I want to talk about when it comes to that is the do something mentality. You should do something. Before you even say that, I am going to cut you off with this question. Do what? It's interesting because action is a lot easier to criticize than inaction. And we should recognize this when it comes time to criticize inaction. This is a a true statement in all facets of life. Criticizing action is easier than criticizing inaction. And I'll tell you why. There are two points to be made when it comes to actions that people partake in. The could and the should. Could you do it? Should you do it? Everyone wants to focus on the should. Everyone wants to focus on the should. That's where they get to inject their opinions in. Should you do this? Yes or no? I get to have a take, a hot take, a cold take, whatever it is, it's my take. And my take is about the should. Should you do that? But with action, the could is already answered. Of course they could. They did. With inaction, you now have two questions to answer. Not only should you have done it, but more importantly, could you have done it? So when you're criticizing an action, you don't have to worry about the could part. Because you already saw them do it. So, of course, they could do it. They did do it. So now you can focus on the should. But when you're attempting to criticize an inaction, you have two boxes you have to check now. The could and the should. And when you yell into the ether, just do something for the love of all that is holy and sacred. Brandon Bean, do something. Okay, great. Do you know for a fact they could have done the thing that you're suggesting? And sometimes the answer to that's no, and that frustrates you even more. Well, do something. Okay, great. Tell me what it is you wanted Brandon Bean to do. Well, I wanted him to, I wanted him to trade for, I, I don't know, somebody. Okay, well, that's not a real plan. So you're mad about something that you, what, don't know at all or, or what exactly? Well, I I wanted him to trade up a second round for Julio Jones. Okay, great. Do we know that Julio Jones was available for a second round? Well, no. Okay. So you're criticizing an abstract hypothetical that you don't know is actually true, and you're holding a real person responsible for an action that they may or may not have actually been able to complete. Well, that doesn't seem very reasonable. The best thing is to think about other trades that have been made. Everson Griffin for a six-round pick. I don't see a reason why the Cowboys wouldn't have traded him to the Buffalo Bills. It seems reasonable that if Brandon Bean would have called and offered a fifth-round pick that they probably would have taken that. So, okay, we can talk about that deal. You can talk about that particular deal. And whether or not you wanted the Bills to make that particular move. Because that's an actual plan that you can criticize. Or in this case, criticize the lack of that plan. But you can't just yell into the ether, do something. Because something isn't an answer. You have to come up with something else they could have done. You have to make sure you can confirm the could before you can criticize the should. So let's talk about some of these people who could potentially be on the trading block. First off, Quinn Williams is not on the trading block. Multiple people from the Jets have come out and said, we are not looking to trade Quinn Williams. If someone blew them away with an offer and offered them four first round picks, I'm sure they'd probably take it. But we can write that off at this point. Stefan Gilmore is very likely not coming back to Buffalo. New England would very likely not trade with the Bills. I have very little interest in J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt has been a smidge better than Mario Addison this year, costs way more money, and pass rush really isn't the problem with the Buffalo Bills right now. They have a linebacker issue. They have a coverage issue. But I would argue their pass rush isn't really that bad. They're top 10 in pressures. They're top 10 in pass rush win rate. Well, Bruce, they're not top 10 in sacks. Well, didn't you listen to me at all this offseason? Coverage is more important than pass rush. Historically, the average time to sack in the NFL is 4.3 seconds. The vast majority of quarterbacks have average time to throws that are way lower than that. Josh Allen is second longest in the league at 3.05 seconds. Therefore, what is it that causes sacks? Is it the rush getting there quickly, or is it the quarterback holding the ball? It's the quarterback holding the ball. What makes the quarterback hold the ball? Coverage. I'm not even convinced we need a pass rusher on this team right now. That's better than what we've got. I'm not going to turn down a great pass rusher. No one's going to turn down a great pass rusher. But certainly not somebody who's markedly more expensive than Mario Addison has to come in, learn the system for way more money and represents cap space we don't have. This is already the highest paid defensive line in football. No, thank you. Let's shore up some of the other areas. So that gives you my perspective on J.J. Watt. How about Brian Poole? Absolutely sign me up. I have no idea if the Jets are going to be willing to trade inside the division. But you give me an upgrade at nickel corner, you make those quarterbacks hold that ball a little bit longer so the pass rush can get there, I am on board. I am absolutely on board. Desmond King, same thing. Obviously a little bit more risky, I think, with Desmond King. He hasn't played as well as consistently. But then it brings us to our defensive tackles. Common name there, Dalvin Tomlinson. Ryan Talbot from newyorkupstate.com and syracuse.com wrote a great article on why it is he feels like that would be a good fit for the Buffalo Bills. I would encourage you to go to Twitter and check it out. Go to nyupstate.com, check it out. I would agree with that. The Giants are trading him out of division. He's in a contract year. They're probably not going to be able to get anything for him later when he walks. They might be in buy-now mode in the offseason. So they might not get the offsets necessary for compensatory picks. Because they might be trying to rebuild some stuff in the offseason. So they may not be in compensatory pick sort of mode. Dalvin Tomlinson is actually in the middle of his best year. So, you ignore the Dave Gettleman connection with Brandon Bean. Where if you recall... Dave Gettleman called Brandon Bean and asked about Odell Beckham Jr. So obviously, they've got that kind of relationship. Dalvin Tomlinson also plays one technique, which is a position on our defensive line that has been lacking since Starla opted out of the season. I am on board with Dalvin Tomlinson. There's not a lot of great options sitting out there for people that we know, number one, are available. Number two, we know they're available for a reasonable price that will not inhibit this team's ability to build. Because of the cap situation that the Bills find themselves in, in addition to the contracts that are coming up on this team markedly, Josh Allen's contract, that you have to account for the possibility that he's going to be paid $40 million a year at some point, you have to account for that. Draft picks are more important to this team now than they have been in recent memory. This idea that we're going to go all for broke, do something, Brandon Bean, burn our draft capital, you're going to be really, really irritated that we don't have any draft picks when the draft comes around. Also, you need low contract, high performing players in this league. It's the greatest market inefficiency in sports. Is a mid-round pick or even a day two pick who plays really well on a rookie deal. That is the most significant gap you can possibly get between value added to the team and value given to the player. And that's what becomes a competitive advantage for a team. And when you have high-priced veterans on your team, like Deion Dawkins and Tredavious White and maybe Josh Allen and Jordan Poyer and hopefully Matt Milano if he gets extended, you need to backfill that roster with reliable, high-performing players who are not on expensive contracts. You do that through the draft. I'm not saying you never trade anything for anybody. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we are entering a different era of Bills football that you might not be used to because we never got this far into a rebuild before without having to rebuild the thing again. So we are in uncharted waters right now as a Bills fan base. We need to start worrying about compensatory draft picks. We need to be a little bit more prudent. We need to start maybe thinking about trading down, perhaps. I know, Brandon Bean, crazy thought, maybe we should trade down at this point. Maybe we've missed the boat on the trade-up time. That time is gone. That was for rebuilding bills. That was for trying to get your franchise quarterback bills. If Josh Allen's the guy, we don't have to trade up anymore. We need to trade down, accumulate more picks, and make sure we can fill this roster with good players who aren't expensive. So I'm ready for trade deadline. There are some people we just talked about that are bouncing around out there. I am in favor of the Dalvin Tomlinson deal for a reasonable day three pick. I think he makes a significant impact on this team this year. And potentially could join into the compensatory pick idea that the Bills might have to start thinking about if he departs in the offseason. So we've talked about the trade deadline. We talked about Darren Lee. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. We are going to go through your almighty takes. And I'm going to tell you how we crumble the cookies of the New England Patriots this week. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Learn more at marines.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. We are going to get into your almighty takes. As a reminder, you can email me. I am Bruce Almighty at Yahoo.com. You can hit me up with a Twitter DM with your almighty take. You can tweet at me with a hashtag almighty take. Or you can hit me with an Instagram message. If you misspell Almighty, or if you don't tag it, or if you don't message me, I might not find it. So make sure you follow the rules so I can make sure I get to your take. Matt Santoro says I submit that Brian Dable will unload a handful of new game changing plays involving unlikely players on the Belichick defense that we haven't seen yet this season. For example, a dump off to Feliciano or Dawkins. That results in a touchdown. Well, I mean, would it really be all that unexpected if Deion Dawkins caught a touchdown? Hey, man, if you snow, you snow. I don't know what to tell you. But it's not uncommon for Brian Dable to come out with some weird stuff. If you recall the Derrick Anderson game against the New England Patriots during Josh Allen's rookie season, they opened with all sorts of trick plays and wildcat and things like that all to get as many yards as we possibly could and get them off balance. I don't think it's crazy to see that type of thing against the New England Patriots. So I'm going to say this is somewhat improbable because it's not likely I say, but it's not unheard of. We've seen it before. So I'm going to say somewhat improbable patch says his special teams. Almighty take is Tyler Bass is reliable. He made the first two high-pressure kicks last week. First at the end of the second quarter, capitalizing on his fellow rookie's interception. And the second was the first drive of the third, getting right third quarter woes. I am not prepared to say Tyler Bass is reliable. I need more statistically significant data for that. I think that being able to kick a 52-yarder in the rain against the Chiefs would have been a high-pressure kick that he didn't hit. So I'm not willing to get there yet. I'm going to say highly unlikely at this point that Tyler Bass is reliable. However, I'm willing to give him more time as we've talked about before. Allen says his almighty take for the Patriots game with Cam Newton somehow playing for his job and Belichick trying to avoid a four game losing streak. I think the bills will need an especially big game from the defense and the run game in order to beat New England. This is highly probable. I'm not sure if Cam Newton's playing for his job because I think perhaps we underestimate how bad Jared Stidham is. Jared Stidham is a bad quarterback. The reason why I was not happy when the Patriots got Cam Newton isn't because I think Cam Newton's awesome. It's because I think Jared Stidham is terrible. And I was like, oh man, they got better at a big position that's quarterback. I wanted to see Jared Stidham. And I do think the Bills are going to need an especially big game from the defense and the run game in order to beat New England. At the time of this recording, it is estimated there will be some pretty significant wind gusts, potentially some storms for the game on Sunday. I do think the run game is going to be important. I think having John Feliciano back is important for this team. Padden says the Pats game will be the true get right game. Offense finds the end zone, scores more than 20, defense holds the pass to under 20, Allen's growth, Patriots from last year to this year is clear, passes for 250 and two touchdowns. Whew. This one's a tough one because there's a lot of things going on in this one. I'm going to say somewhat probable. I think Josh Allen throwing for 250 is fairly common at this point in his career, so I'd say that's... Okay, I don't know if this team is going to score enough touchdowns. The Patriots defense has always done a good job of making sure they limit scoring. Very, 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 very common for the Patriots to have top 10 scoring defenses. 19 out of 23 years, Bill Belichick has had a top 10 scoring defense. They know how to keep you out of the end zone. When you combine this with the fact that the Bills haven't scored 20 for the last three weeks... I'm going to say that's probably difficult. Patton, you parlayed your almighty take and it's messing me up. You know what? Change my mind midstream. I'm going to go with somewhat improbable. Matt says his almighty take is this game will be eerily similar to last year's week 16 game. Pat's need to bounce back and Buffalo needs to slay the dragon. The game will be back and forth with one major difference. Josh will hit the winning touchdown at the end, not overthrow it. Back and forth, one major difference. The Bills have had some back and forth games, but not the last couple of weeks. The last couple of weeks have not been back and forth. It feels to me that the back and forth games that the Bills get into are directly correlative to how good their offense plays. And I don't think this is the week where the Bills put up 500 yards of offense and light up this Patriots defense. This Patriots defense does have flaws, but it's still well-coached, they tackle well, they force you into turnovers. I'm going to say... Highly unlikely, because I don't know if this is going to be back-and-forth game. I think whoever controls the line of scrimmage at this game is going to win the game. Aaron McDuffie says, While it's fresh in my mind, let me send in this week's take. Because Dawson Knox is relatively new to the tight end position, and because the demands of the NFL meta favoring offense on offense on offense, the Bills should forego Dawson Knox's run-blocking development and focus solely on developing him into a pass-catching tight end a la Travis Kelsey and not so much a tight end in the vein of George Kittle. Allowing Knox to focus developing exclusively as a pass-catcher allows for more run-blocking reps by fullback Reggie Gilliam, arguably giving him the same developmental boost as a fullback that Knox might have at tight end. I am not a fan overall of specialization in your offensive players. One of the things I really like about what Kyle Shanahan does as an offensive mind in San Francisco is that all of his players are pretty much interchangeable at the skill positions. He throws the ball to running backs. He runs the ball with wide receivers. He runs the ball with tight ends. He has the things where you have to account for For every single player. And that's how you're able to manufacture offense when your quarterback is Jimmy Garoppolo. You can manufacture these types of offense because everyone is a threat to do anything at any time. Kyle Juszczyk's strength is that he can be used as a fullback, which he is, and can block well, but he can also catch passes. You have to account for every single person in every single way. Specialization on offense breeds predictability. I've said it before, I said it now, I'm going to say it again right now, just for emphasis. Specialization on offense breeds predictability. Specialization anywhere breeds predictability. If you only ask players to do one thing, the defense knows the player only doing one thing. The great joy of offensive football in today's league is that versatility at skill positions allows the defense and allows players specifically on the second level, linebackers, corners who are close to line of scrimmage, to take false steps expecting one thing and getting a different thing. This is the reason why you have motion. This is the reason why you have play action. This is the reason why the best offenses in the league utilize these things. It is not because it is the only way to do offense, but it does help. So I am generally not in favor of essentially turning Dawson Knox into a wide receiver. Only ask him on the field when it's time to catch passes. In addition, Dawson Knox still has drops problems to deal with. I would make an argument Dawson Knox might be better as a blocker than he is as a catcher right now. Simply because the drop issues, albeit in a limited sample size, This year, he has markedly less targets because he's been out with injury. He's been out with COVID. But he still drops some passes that I don't want him to drop. So, I would not be in favor of this. I'm going to say that because of the way that the Bills ask their tight ends and fullbacks to play, I'm going to say the Bills probably wouldn't be interested in it. So, I am going to give this one a highly improbable. At Jedi Josh Allen says his almighty take is that the Bills will continue their winning in the AFC East, but it will only be by six or fewer in a game that totals less than 42 points total. Josh Allen rushes, and key defensive plays will lead the way in this win. Weather will play a role. I'd say this is somewhat probable. The only part about this that I don't think is highly probable is the Bills winning. The Bills very well could win this game but this is going to be very, very tight. The thing that the Bills do well is being hampered, and the things the Patriots do well are being amplified by this particular game, by the injuries, by the scenarios, by the circumstances surrounding the game, by the weather. All of these factors are amplifying the things the Patriots do well and minimizing the things that the Bills do well. So I am concerned about this game. But qualitatively, the winner winning by six or less. See that? Less than 42 points total. Yep. Josh Allen rushes. Key defensive plays will lead the way if we win. Yes, I can see all this. So I'm going to say this is somewhat probable. CS says, I'm not entirely sure what kind of box this fits in, but it isn't really an almighty take. So I'm in the DMs with this question. Have the bills been literally falling over a lot this year? Is this part of our less-than-stellar defense? I might be seeing ghosts, but re the last couple games, falling over seems to be a recurring problem. You're not wrong, CS. Sean McDermott had questions about the turf at the Bills' stadium. I almost just called it New Era Field. And specifically, the slipping that's been happening. It's not just you. It is not just you at all. The Bills have been slipping more. Other teams have been slipping more too when they come to the stadium, but it's more the turf than it is Bills. Jesse says, Bruce, Jesse, the Patriots will have a chance to win on the final drive, but the Bills defense will hold during a game with fewer than 40 combined points on defense. The Bills will stack the box more than usual, knowing Newton currently lacks confidence and the weapons to explore their strategy per the usual. The Bills will forget how to tackle for about one quarter, but they will gather themselves and turn in a solid performance against a limited offense. The Bills will struggle offensively against a determined and talented Patriots defense that employs a coverage-style strategy similar to what the Bills have encountered during the last three weeks. However, the Bills will score slightly more than they have the past three weeks because the Patriots won't consistently hold the ball, giving the Bills more drive opportunities and shorter fields. This is a heck of a take. Jesse, I gotta be honest. I can see this playing out exactly like you said. I'd say this is somewhat probable. This is a story. It's got a beginning, a middle, a climax, an end. I'd write a a movie about this. I would watch this movie, Jesse. I would watch the Bills 30 for 30 or the Embedded on this game playing out just like that. On a windy Sunday in Buffalo, New York, one team managed to dethrone the previous champions and that team was the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, I can totally see that. Jeremy Gugino says, Bruce, I'm not sure whether this falls under the almighty take umbrella, so do with it what you will. I am doing with it what I will, Jeremy. We're going to read this. It's very long, but it's good, so stick with me. I think it's time we get rid of the term hot take. In my opinion, It's the most overused and misleading term we use in the sports talk universe, and I cringe every time I hear it. In theory, a hot take is an opinion that cuts against conventional wisdom, a contrarian viewpoint, if you will. In practice, however, hot takes are generally provocative or predictive viewpoints based on no data or cogent analysis. None of that is terribly helpful in generating useful discussion about players, teams, and strategies. Example. Gabriel Davis is a star, and therefore, we should cut John Brown, save a ton of money on the salary cap, and move forward. Mind you, people were saying this about three games into the season. While Davis is a promising rookie and potentially a fourth-round steal, even a cursory analysis of the Bills' offense would suggest that we are better off with Brown and Davis as opposed to just Davis. Furthermore, Brown has a proven track record, has the trust of Josh Allen, and is a great teammate. This quote-unquote hot take was clearly intended to provoke Bills fans into a discussion that isn't worth our time. Predictive hot takes are equally as annoying. Example, preseason takes that Josh Allen was an MVP candidate. Again, there is nothing in the data to suggest this would be the case. We all know Allen has made steady progress since coming into the league. He has gone from being a bad QB to an average QB. As such, there was ample evidence to suggest he could be an above-average QB to even a good QB this year. Good does not an MVP make. Furthermore, everyone was surprised by his first four games. That cuts against the preseason hot take that he was an MVP candidate. If you really thought he was an MVP candidate, then the first four games should have come as no surprise. Instead, everyone was surprised. Finally, I would suggest there's nothing hot about a well-thought-out opinion backed by data and analysis that goes against conventional wisdom. For instance, Ed Oliver is playing really well this season. I don't see that as a hot take, but rather a cogent and reasoned analysis of Ed Oliver's play based on film study. It is neither provocative nor predictive. It is just an informed opinion. Let's call people with hot takes what they are. Provocateurs. I guess that's my hot take on hot takes. I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed this, Jeremy. Thank you so much for sending this. And it's interesting because I do think there's a place for hot takes. And I do think there's a place for provocation. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. The idea that play action passing and the success of it is not predicated on the run game being good was at one point an incredibly provocative hot take. At one point when you said that, people laughed at you and said, that's insane. That doesn't make any sense. But it was a hot take. Because it cuts against conventional wisdom. It's a contrarian viewpoint. And that is, as you mentioned in your first paragraph, what hot take is actually intended to mean. Now, hot take just means provocative. So we need to delineate between a hot take and just a provocative take. Because a hot take is going to have some reasoning behind it. Hey, I think this thing, here's why. It doesn't necessarily have to be my logic, but it has to be somebody's logic. And it has to make some semblance of sense. But nowadays, hot take could either be a hot take with backed data or a hot take with no backed data. Either way, it's intended to provoke. The difference is simply how good it is. So I am of the opinion you can have a good hot take and a bad hot take. And that's where we should draw the line. I am with you, Jeremy. Here's where I'm drawing the line. There is such a thing as a good hot take. There is such a thing as a bad hot take. A hot take that is unable to be explained is a bad hot take. They're both provocative, but one of them is provoking with the intention of getting across a different line of thinking to force someone to reevaluate how they view a certain piece of data. When I went off on a tangent a couple weeks back about the defensive game plan against the Kansas City Chiefs, I had a couple people DM me and say, Bruce, I like the way you explained that. I think I get it now. It wasn't necessarily a hot take. I had an opinion, and I had data backing up the opinion. I had logic backing up the opinion. I said, here's something that I think, and now I'm going to tell you why. That's what we do on this podcast I don't say things out loud to hear myself talk. The truth is that outside this podcast, I talk very little in my day-to-day life. The reason I do it here is because I have something I wanna say and I wanna explain how I arrived at that conclusion because if I don't, then it's useless. The conclusion and the result is useless. The process is better. The how and the why are more important interrogatives than what. And so how you arrived at your hot take and why you arrived at your hot take is more important than the take itself. And if you can't properly explain that to me, then it might still be a hot take, but it's a bad one. So we're going to define hot take by the correct definition, something that may cut against conventional wisdom or have a contrarian viewpoint. That's a hot take. I would argue that what you were describing here, the provocative hot takes and the predictive hot takes, they're not not hot takes. They're still hot takes. They're just bad ones. So we can have good hot takes and we can have bad hot takes and they're not based on the take itself. It's based on whether or not you're capable of explaining it. It's based on whether or not you can explain to me how you got from point A where the rest of us are to your contrarian viewpoint. If you're gonna have a contrarian viewpoint, you have to explain to me how you need to move me off of my spot. That is how you convince people of things in today's society. You don't just yell at them and tell them they're stupid and you don't just say something for the sake of hearing yourself talk. Instead, you walk them through the point from where they are to where you are. But people aren't willing to do that because they just want their clicks. And those are bad hot takes. But there is such a thing as a good hot take. And I hope I'm able to give it to you. Next one. Vintage Buffalo Threads on Instagram says, Zach Moss will continue to get more touches and snaps. I personally think he looks more dangerous than Devin Singletary. This is starting to come up a little bit. Is Zach Moss a better player than Devin Singletary? Now that he is starting to recover from the toe injury. I'm not there quite yet. I think Devin Singletary's ability to make the first guy miss is still more valuable than Zach Moss. I haven't seen Zach Moss break the level of tackles that I've seen from Devin Singletary. And if you don't have elite speed, you have to be able to break tackles. I do think Zach Moss could get some touches in this game, depending on if the Bills want to go power running game against the New England Patriots. I would advise against it, Unless it works right off the bat with John Feliciano. If he's the key at guard to making this work, then so be it. But historically, Bills have been better over the last couple of years running out of spread formations. Enmalize says, hi, Bruce, big fan of the podcast. Last week, you discussed the Bills game plan against the Chiefs, and I agree with what you said. However, I think the Bills have struggled situationally at times i.e., I think it was the correct game plan, but at a certain point, they needed to stop the run and couldn't. In no way would I insinuate that that should have been the game plan, but at a certain point when it was necessary, they were unable to switch and make the stop when they needed to. I'd be curious if you have any type of method for measuring effectiveness of game plan versus reacting to game situations and altering the game plan. I'll be looking forward to the next podcast. Edmolize, thank you so much for bringing this up. So I mentioned in that podcast that that the execution of the plan was a little bit flawed. But sometimes the plan isn't always visible. Sometimes you look at a defensive game plan and go, now, uh, what would you say you were doing here? What was the goal? What was the end game? Because it's such a cluster that you can't really tell what they were trying to do. It was just bad. It was pretty obvious at the Chiefs game what the plan was. So it's hard for you to measure effectiveness of a game plan versus reacting to game situations when you don't necessarily know what the game plan was because sometimes it's not as obvious as it was against the Chiefs. In addition, there are certain specific execution things that you can judge. Tackling percentage is a thing that you can measure. You can measure tackling percentage, but it's hard to tell unless you look at the film whether or not somebody's in the right gap Because it's not really all that difficult to know whose gap is supposed to be what. Because defenses, generally speaking, have similar rules when it comes to who's responsible for where. That stuff is something that has a reasonable probability of being correct when the assumption is made when you're watching film. You're not always going to be right. Sometimes you're going to be wrong on that. But when you look at it, you can reasonably assume who's responsible for what. Sometimes a defensive end lines up incorrectly in a five tech or a four tech or a seven tech when he's supposed to be a nine tech and Dean Marlowe has to come up and tap him on the rear end and remind them they're in the wrong spot. That happens occasionally. Cough, cough, hint, hint, wink, wink, AJ Epinesa. But sometimes it's hard to do that. And so this is a very difficult thing to do. Now. Reacting to game situations is a different story. I mentioned yesterday about the Bills offense reacting to game situations. They probably thought they were going to see more man in pressure too. And then all of a sudden you started to see these package plays to take advantage of numbers, advantages on the outside of the line of scrimmage with Cole Beasley. You started to see called QB draws to get the offensive linemen up on linebackers who were not going to be charging downhill because they were going to be in zone. This is an adjustment that you see. But you're not really going to be able to tell unless you were first able to draw a logical conclusion on what the team may have expected that they saw versus what they actually did see. There's a lot of gray here. And the truth is, a lot of times you're going to get wrong. A lot of times I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to step up to this podcast and I'm going to get it wrong. And that's going to happen because I'm not privy to all the information. Even with the film, I'm still privy to a small portion of the total amount of information. There's some of these things I can kind of assume and piece together based on route combinations, based on coverages, based on body language. You can kind of start to piece together what you think it should have looked like. But as we mentioned at the very beginning of this pod, that's right, I tied it all the way together. Criticizing action is a lot easier than criticizing inaction. Criticizing something you saw a player do is a lot easier than saying they should have done something else because you need the could and the should. In this case, we know what he did, but it's kind of a little bit different. It's almost the inverse of the discussion we had earlier today. We know what he did, but it's kind of hard sometimes to know what they should have done. So it's hard to separate execution. Specific plays, you can do it. But it would take me hours upon hours upon hours to do it with every player for every snap. So, I hope that answers your question. There isn't really a good method of measuring effectiveness of the game plan versus reacting to the game plan when you throw in the execution with a little dash of bang right in there like Emerald Lagasse. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to take another break Because this pod is running crazy long. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about crumbling the cookies. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. And thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive of Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. And the marathon pod rolls on to the crumbling of their cookies. We have done three of the four sections I promised you we would do at the beginning of this pod. And I'm still going. I'm exhausted, by the way. This is... This is a thing for sure, but we're going to power through. We're going to make it happen because I owe you. I promised you we were going to do this and I'm a man of my word. So let's dive right into what I think on a high level the Bills should expect to see this week against the New England Patriots. Number one, I feel the need, the need for speed. That's right. I'm making Top Gun references. Big whoop, want to fight about it? This is a game where I wish Devin Singletary and Zach Moss were faster. Speed is not usually a super high priority for me in running backs. We've talked about this before. Vision, contact, balance. Give me those things. This is a game I wish they were faster. Because I want to be able to stretch the New England defense horizontally. The Patriots have looked slow at the second level, running sideline to sideline. And although you know the unit as a whole is still formidable... The use of motion and speed by the San Francisco 49ers last week reinforced a weakness on the Patriots defense that might be difficult for the Bills to exploit. Enter stage left Isaiah McKenzie. We should see more Isaiah McKenzie this week than we have seen all year long. The jet motion role is extremely important. A career high in touches for Isaiah McKenzie? Sure, I'm down with it. Seeing wide receivers run motion who we don't usually see, John Brown, Stephon Diggs, I am for it. Do you remember the jet motion handoff to Dawson Knox last year against the Cincinnati Bengals? I would not be shocked if we see it again this week. If we do, I want literally all the points, all the Bruce Bucks for that, because that's a very obscure reference and I deserve some credit for it. The fact of the matter is when you have this amount of speed and you do not have speed at the second level for the Patriots, one false step can allow a ball carrier to corner and rip off a big play. The Bills don't have that speed at the running back position, so you have to manufacture it elsewhere. That's what I want to see from the Bills this week. On defense, the Bills need to prepare for a downhill running game. I'm not sure if the Patriots throw the ball 25 times on Sunday. The weather Poor play recently from Cam Newton, who inexplicably is not throwing to his right. That's a whole nother thing. Didn't get a chance to dive into why that is. I watched it. I confirmed it. Can't figure out why. Injuries to the weapons in New England? It might force New England to be the kind of team we thought they would be anyway, which is power running. Just waves upon waves of Cam Newton, Sony Michel, Rex Burkhead, Damian Harris, and... The Bills could be down two of the defensive tackles. Vernon Butler, Quentin Jefferson might be out. Tremaine Edmonds needs to have his best game of 2020. This is not the time for misreads in the run game. I will be watching Tremaine Edmonds every single snap during the live watch of the game. Every single one. I will be paying zero attention to Cam Newton. Just Tremaine Edmonds. Because i bet dollars to donuts if I was a betting man. That the Patriots have seen Tremaine Edmonds struggling this year. And they will try to put him in the bind that the San Diego at the time, Chargers, put him in during his rookie year. Isolate him. Get him on a running back. Give him false keys with pulling guards to get him in the wrong spot. Isolate him on a running back in the pass game. The Patriots throw the ball to running backs the second most amounts of any team in the entire league. The Bills were able to effectively neutralize both Josh Jacobs and Derrick Henry in consecutive weeks. Let's hope they can do the same to the New England running game. Taron Johnson might be time to provide value because a lot of his value is in the run game. Not necessarily in coverage. Ladies and gentlemen, another pod has come and gone. Thank you so much for sticking around. And for those troopers who listen to all four sections, come all the way through, I have a favor to ask. If you have enjoyed this podcast, if this has brought value to you, give me a review. Whatever podcast app you use, review the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network and put in a few words about what you think about the podcast. It means a great deal to me. Every week I get a message or I get a tweet and somebody will say something about how much they've enjoyed the pod, and it it means a lot to me. Uh, it's a lot of work for me to do this. I care about doing a good job for you guys, because anything worth doing is worth doing well. So with that, I leave you with a little bit of a different outro. I'm going to leave you with a quote from one of my favorite television characters of all time. Never half-ass two things, full-ass.